1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 Timothy.
0: Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. He
2: adds in verse 16, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience. And you're glad it's unlimited as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. He says, he says, listen, I truly believe I'm, I'm the worst of all sinners. I, 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 I don't know anybody else's heart. I just know my own. The Apostle
1: Paul says that he is the worst of sinners, and yet God called him and turned his life so completely around that Paul became one of the greatest missionaries of all time. We might look at Paul and put him up on a pedestal, but that really isn't what Paul would want. He told us that what God did in his life was display his unlimited patience. The patience of God has no limits. It had no limits with Paul, and it has no limits when it comes to you. God meets you with unlimited patience, always. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 1 Timothy chapter one with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: As a devout Jew who did not initially believed that jesus was messiah he thought that all the other jews who did believe jesus was messiah was abandoning the true and living god putting their faith and trust in a false messiah and thus paul in his zealousness for god thought he was helping god by killing those christians And so he was actually a party to rounding up Christians, imprisoning them. In Acts chapter 26, when Paul is also giving his testimony, he talks about how he forced Christians to blaspheme God, to try to deny their faith, imprison them, and help to murder them. Now, we don't know if he personally murdered, but he was a party to it, and that's why he lists just three things about himself. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent man. And he says, but... I was shown mercy circle that word mercy I was shown mercy I was shown mercy aren't you glad that you were shown mercy I know I'm glad that I was shown mercy and continually shown mercy and he said I I acted in ignorance and unbelief now ignorance is never an excuse for sin but it invites God's mercy because you are less culpable than a believer who knowingly sinned. Now, don't lose me on this. We are all guilty before God in terms of position. There's none righteous, no, not one. But there are different levels of guilt in terms of commission. Charles Spurgeon once said, quote, All men are truly sinners, all of us. But all men are not equally sinners. They are all in the mire, we're all in the mud. But they have not all sunk to an equal depth in it. But that's interesting. Again, we are all guilty before God because we're all sinners. So in terms of position, we're all sinners. But in terms of commission, some people have committed even more egregious sins than others. That isn't to say we should compare ourselves to each other. In fact, the Bible warns against that. But there are some more devastating sins that have greater consequences in this lifetime, have greater ramifications. And we should be mindful of that. And the reason I bring this up is because Paul's going to say that about himself. Look on with me. He says in verse 14, the grace, there's another great word for you to circle, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, in my Bibles, I've, I've circled the words mercy, grace, faith, and love because it's a wonderful contrast to the words that describe Paul, before he came to know Christ, blasphemer, persecutor, and violent man, now look at the words that define the Lord, mercy, grace, faith, and love. So he says, this is who I was, now this is who I am, I've been the wonderful recipient of God's mercy, grace, faith, and love. And then he says this in verse 15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. By the way, that phrase is a phrase that Paul will use five times just in the pastoral epistles. That phrase there, a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. In other words, today we would say this, listen up, okay? That's what he's writing there. Listen up. He's like, I got something really critical for you to hear. This is, this is of special importance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst, Paul says. So there's his own testimony when he says, listen, I understand we're all equally guilty before God in terms of position, but he said in terms of commission, I'm the worst of the worst. And I don't think for a moment this is false flattery. I don't think he's saying, ah, yeah, you know, I'm the Apostle Paul. This is a good place for me to write this about myself so that everybody else doesn't feel bad about their sins. I'll just say, here, I'm the worst of sinners. You know, I got you. But I I believe completely that he totally believes that. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that should be the disposition of all of us. We should think about ourselves. I'm the worst sinners. I don't have time to think about your sin issues. The sign of spiritual maturity is to be more concerned about your own sin than the sin of other people. And that's what Paul is saying here. I'm more concerned about my own sin than I am about the sins of others. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of all sinners. I've done things I'm not proud of, he says here. I've blasphemed, I've persecuted, I've been a violent man. He says, but thanks be to God for his mercy and his grace and his faith and his love extended to me. And he adds in verse 16, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners Christ Jesus might display His unlimited patience, and you're glad it's unlimited, as an example for those who would believe on Him and receive eternal life. He says, "He says, listen, I truly believe I'm, I'm the worst of all sinners. I, I I I don't know anybody else's heart. I just know my own, and He says, my own heart is wicked. It's sinful. It's evil. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man." And he says, but here's, here's the beauty of it all. God has shown me great mercy, and you know why? In part, so that by my testimony and my example, other people can get a glimpse of God's mercy in my life. Shouldn't that be the testimony for all of us? Shouldn't we be the display of God's mercy? So that especially for people who knew how we used to be before we came to know Christ, would look at us now and see the wonderful expression of God's grace and mercy in our lives. Listen, I don't know what your past might have been before Christ. Paul's past did not disqualify him from serving the Lord. Paul's past did not disqualify him from serving the Lord. He said, this is who I was, this is who I am, And who I am today is just simply a testimony of God's mercy in my life. So, like Paul, whatever your testimony is, let your past be in the past. And give thanks for God's mercy. And as a new creature in Christ, be on display as an example of his mercy so that others can see his goodness in your life. He says in verse 17, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I personally as a pastor like this because it sounds like he's summarizing and closing off and saying amen, but he still has five more chapters. (laughs) That's a a pastor's dream. But anyhow, he noticed he, he, he just gives honor and glory to the king eternal. He's talking about the Lord the king eternal, that he uses the word king intentionally, that he's ruling and reigning in complete power and glory. He uses the word immortal there, that God has no beginning or ending, being the creator of all things, that he is invisible, he's not seen, but he is knowable, and he's the only God. Now, some translations say the only wise God, but actually the word wise is not in the original Greek language, so NIV, ESV is is more true to the text. The only God. In other words, Paul is saying, especially, remember, the first century Roman Empire, you got a lot of polytheism going on in the Roman Empire. They have a lot of gods. And Paul is writing in a day when he's saying, there's only one true and living God, and he is immortal, invisible, and the king eternal. He's talking about the Lord. And even today, as narrow-minded as people will accuse you of being, because you say there's one God and there's one way to God, that's what the Bible teaches And there are a lot of gods, small g, out there, and a lot of people who say that all paths lead to God. But the fact of the matter is there's one God and one path, and that path is open to all, but it is provided for us through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That's why he says, therefore, honor and glory be to him forever and ever. In verse 18... Here's how he affectionately, again, refers to Timothy, my son. Now, again, not biologically, but spiritually. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. Interesting. In 2 Timothy, we learn uh, that his mother's name is Eunice and his grandmother's name is Lois, and um, that they had a strong spiritual influence in his life. So either they or, or someone in his life prophesied early on when he came to know christ about how god's hand was on him and god was going to use him in a mighty way and you know paul writes in corinthians despise not prophecies i mean prophecies have to be weighed according to scripture Uh, sometimes people can you know have uh, some kind of weird prophetic thing that I, i think is more about the pizza they ate the night before than it is really god And then other times people can have a real word from God. Don't despise prophecy. Prophecy can still be a gift that God gives to to some people and that he will use for his glory and for the benefit of others. But if you receive a prophecy, you better be discerning about it. You better weigh it in Scripture. You better, you know, wait on the Lord, pray about it. Prophecy should never be a word of direction. It should only always be a word of confirmation. Okay? don't do something, you know, somebody comes to you and says, hey, I have a prophetic word. You're supposed to quit your job and, and, and move to Thailand. Well, great. The Thai people need Jesus too, but unless Jesus has told you that first, don't quit your job. Okay, if Jesus has told you that first and then somebody comes along and says I feel like the Lord's given me a prophetic word for you you're Supposed to quit your job and move to Thailand and then you're like, you know The Lord's been dealing with that very thing in my life. Okay, great It's a word of confirmation, but it should never be as a word of direction and Paul says to Timothy here Some prophecies were made about you and now it's come into fruition So be true to those words Once made about you so that by following them you may fight the good fight now Paul I I don't know if he was an athlete or not, but he uses a lot of athletic analogies, you know, like boxing, fight the good fight. He talks about running the race, you know, and he talks about winning a crown. And, uh, you know, uh, the Olympics were were in Paul's days, but actually the Isthmus games were even more popular in Paul's day. So, you know, I, I... I take it that he you know watched ESPN in his day. And he's and he's and he's just encouraging Timothy, you know, fight the good fight. In fact, he'll say about himself in Paul's dying letter, Second Timothy. In Second Timothy four, verse seven, he will say about himself, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. There is therefore now in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who long for his appearing. And Jesus is coming again, and Paul will write his dying words, 2 Timothy 4, 7, to talk about, I fought the good fight, and I finished the race, and I've kept the faith. So he's urging Timothy in the same way, fight the good fight. Listen, your Christian walk, the journey of following Christ is compared to fighting the good fight for a reason. You're in a battle, and it's not just a cultural war. And the, and the, the, the longer we get towards the return of Christ, we, we see it even more sharply defined in our world. There's a cultural war. There's increasing hostility towards Christians and Christianity. We're living in a time where there's increasing hostility towards Christians for their Christian faith. So fighting the good fight of the faith doesn't mean come back combatively. Try to say that yourself. Like, this is not a call to hostility, but this is simply a call to vigilance that we have to be recognizing in this world there's going to be a clash with our culture, so fight the good fight of the faith. But there's also the other aspect, not just cultural war, but there's also that spiritual war. Ephesians chapter 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So there's this constant awareness as Christians, we have to always be on our guard. Peter tells us in 1 Peter that the, our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So on a few different fronts, we as Christians have to still be fighting the good fight of the faith, persevering, running the race. That's why he adds in verse 19, holding on to faith... And a good conscience. Hold on to those things. Some have, sadly, rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Now, the word rejected these is actually, he's using some nautical terms here because it's a term in the Greek that means to cast off, like you're, you know, you're, you're setting sail and you're leaving the dock. Some have rejected these, rejected faith and a good conscience, sound doctrine, and as a result, they have shipwrecked their faith. The Greek word is Nuagio, We get our English word, navigate. They've shipwrecked. They've lost the ability to navigate their faith. I don't know if it's a statement. Don't, don't try to split hairs. Have, have they lost their faith? Are they not going to heaven? You know, were they once saved? Now they aren't. Just don't get on that bandwagon. Just read it for what it is. I don't know. But they're not in a good place. Can we agree to that at least? This is not a good place to have shipwrecked your faith. And he names them. He calls them out. Verse 29, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have, listen, handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. So that's how serious it is. And this phrase, handed off to Satan, is a similar phrase that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, talking about excommunicating someone who is unrepentant about sin in the church so he's basically saying to timothy you need to take hymenius and alexander you need to kick them out of the church that's what that phrase means to hand them over to satan it is an acting church discipline for the sake of removing someone from the protective nurturing care of the church so that then exposed to satan they will come running back to god Because there's a certain measure of protection that we enjoy in the fellowship of the church. And when that is removed, we are more exposed to the work of Satan. And Paul says here, it sounds drastic, but sometimes it's the loving thing to do to put someone out of the congregation and he names these two guys, hand them over to Satan with the hopes that they'll come back to their senses to be taught not to blaspheme. So apparently these two guys perhaps... We're a part of those spreading false doctrine in the church, instead of living and teaching sound doctrine, and thus, Paul says, you need to take them out of the church. They are spreading false information, and they need to be taught not to blaspheme. So let's go through just the first part here of, of chapter 2, turn in chapter 2 here. He says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, he repeats that, and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. So you'll notice here in the opening verses of chapter 2, it's number 3 on our list, the church should be also defined by prayer. And he starts out chapter 2 by saying, I want you to pray, and he uses three different terms here, requests, Prayers, intercession. Those are three different words. Request, King James Version says, supplications. It means to beg or petition God. Prayers is just a very broad term. It means communication with the Lord. And intercession means when we plead on behalf of others. So he says, I I want you to exercise all three. Requests, prayers, intercession, and sprinkle it with thanksgiving. Always be thankful to God to be made for everyone. So everybody, I mean, we should be praying for everyone, but then he specifically says, verse two, for kings and all those in authority, why? That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, listen, this verse here, First Timothy 2.2, 2, is the main passage to remind us of the importance that we should be praying for all of our elected leaders. We should be praying for all of our elected leaders, whether you voted for them or not because they're in positions of authority, they are in positions of influence, and for that reason we should honor authority, even if we disagree with policy, we should honor the office that they hold. And we should pray for them because they're in a position of influence and even if they don't know the Lord, the, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, the Bible says, and he directs it as a water course as he wills. So God, like a river, as God controls the stream of a river, he can control the heart of the king. And people who are in positions of authority need God's people praying for them so that even if they don't know the Lord, they can enact policies, procedures, and vote on laws and all the kinds of things that would help us in our country as instruments of God. We need to be praying for them. We need to be praying for the president. We need to be praying for the vice president. We need to be be praying for members of the Congress. We need to be praying for our state leaders, our our governor, our lieutenant governor, our, our legislature. We need to be praying for these people. Our mayor, we need to be praying for them. God's people are to be praying for our elected leaders. And God says that there's this wonderful benefit that when we pray for our elected leaders, it helps us to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That God honors the prayers of his people. And when we pray for our elected leaders, he uses that to bring about in our lives a greater measure of peace and a greater measure of godliness. So we need to be praying for our elected leaders, they're in a difficult position. They're in a difficult position. We need to be wise and we need to be fully engaged in the political process too, gang. Listen, I know, you know, sometimes, and I I, I really don't understand this. I mean, I understand it, but I don't, I don't fully grasp. Why some people take offense from time to time that I will talk about political things from the pulpit because I I, I get the reason because we've bought into this whole lie about separation of church and state, which is nowhere in the U.S. Constitution. But we've bought into this lie that the church should not be engaged in government. The fact of the matter is that the Constitution protects the church from the government being engaged in us. But it is not intended to prohibit the church from being engaged in government. We should be actively involved in government and in politics and being salt and light it is not our christian faith is not reserved only for within the four walls of the church for goodness sakes we are to go outside of the church be salt and light in our world and we should impact all aspects of our lives as far as god gives us influence and when it comes to the wonderful privilege of living in the greatest country in the world we should be actively engaged and so we should be a part of How can we influence policy? How can we influence political leaders? How can we vote for the right people? Who is really, you know, following Christ? Who isn't? And even people who aren't like Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible, God will use for his glory to accomplish his purposes. But God calls us to do our part, which is to pray. Now, he he goes on in the rest of this chapter, verse 8, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger and disputing verse 9, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. He says a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love. And holiness with propriety. Golly, gee, Willikers! Look at that. We've run out of time. But sincerely, we have run out of time, and um, and we will cover this next week because I know you want to hear this, don't you? I want to hear it too. I, I'm waiting. For, I'm waiting for the whole, for the Holy Spirit to tell me. Uh, but anyhow.
1: We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary. While this New Testament letter of 1 Timothy talks a lot about leadership in the church, the principles you find within apply to everyone. Each of us has a place where we can lead, whether in your job, in your home, or interactions with a younger generation. Are you displaying God's love to those looking up to you? It's not just what you say. It's how you live your life every day. And if you need some advice on how to do that, we encourage you to keep reading in 1 Timothy. If you missed any part of today's message or would like to explore other books of the Bible with Pastor Gary, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc today. You'll be able to listen online or you can download our mobile app to take these teachings on the go. And if you're in the Leesburg area, we'd love to have you join us for worship this weekend. Just click on the Cornerstone Chapel logo at the top of the page at cornerstoneconnection.cc to get service times, directions, and all the information you need. One more time, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. Well, that's all we have time for today. Join Pastor Gary next time for more from 1 Timothy right here on Cornerstone Connection.
2: They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you
1: know, you're not alone.